Emerald podcast series. Research that makes a difference. Hello, I'm Rebecca Tall and welcome to the Emerald podcast series. As our world continues to experience an unprecedented era of disruption and social change, there is a pressing need for activists and criminologists to work together to expose injustices and challenge harmful norms. Activities must also include ways to tackle the negative impacts of crime controls on the lives of intersectionally disadvantaged groups in society. To discuss these issues, I'm joined by three criminology experts based at universities within the UK and Australia. Victoria Cannon is Associate Professor of Criminology at the University of Bristol in the UK. I have done a lot of work with activist organisations, uh, in particular with people who are seeking asylum and survivors of violence and torture. Greg Martin is Associate Professor of Criminology, Law and Society in the School of Social and Political Sciences at the University of Sydney in Australia. I've, I've sort of got a combination of background in sociology, law and criminology. Steve Toombs is Emeritus Professor at the Department of Social Policy and Criminology at the Open University in the UK. I started out life as a sociologist. I was a kind of sociologist in disaster. So my PhD was around Bhopal uh, in 1984, the killing of tens of thousands of Indians. Our conversation focuses on the work of activist criminologists, the barriers they face, and ways they are challenging injustice. During discussions, my guests also highlight their new publication, the Emerald International Handbook of Activist Criminology, which is part of the Emerald Studies in Activist Criminology series. Listen in as we delve into the ideas, stories and experiences of these visionary researchers who are challenging the status quo and driving meaningful change. Activist criminology, I think in a nutshell, would be criminology which actively engages in addressing harms of criminalization, harms of injustice and other aspects of state and corporate abuses uh, in a way that is also works with grassroots organizations, works with also survivors and victims of various uh, abuses and, and harms, but also, and I think this is really important, is, is empirically informed criminology. So whenever we recognize and see abuses or injustices, rather than simplistically documenting about finding solutions to problems and issues. But those problems and issues also do require a kind of, you know, well, study, empirical research, ethnography, autoethnography, interviews, survey data, etc., to be able to work kind of conducively to come to more like proactive outcomes that are, are beneficial for, for affected groups. And so how would you say that criminal justice activism has evolved in recent years? Well, the actual term activist criminology was coined by Joanne Belknap, who is a, an American academic in a presidential address that she gave to the um, American Society of Criminology in 2014. That's my, my understanding of where the, the term comes from. She had a fairly sort of generic sort of way of conceiving it as work that's done in social and legal justice beyond academia, essentially. So that can be used, you can run with that and use that in any kinds of, any sorts of ways, really. 
that then inspired her address, it inspired a, a couple of years later, a special issue of critical criminology in 2015, I think that was. And then really, it's only with our book series that it's sort of become, I guess, more sort of uh, ossified in a way. You know, so we've got a book series now and, and the handbook that's attached to that. And, and you know, the, the contents of the handbook pretty much at the moment anyway, because it is an, a burgeoning sort of area, that is a, is, a, is a sort of way of thinking about the positioning of activist criminology now and potential ways in which it could develop in the future. But it's a sort of a state of the art, as it were, of what is happening in activist criminology as very broadly conceived um, at the moment. One of the things that's changed, Greg alluded to, uh, I mentioned um, uh, Belknap's speech in 2014, the Presidential Society speech, where she named, in a sense, named activist criminology. And I think I never thought of what I was doing as activist criminology. I was just doing what I did, right? I mean, I, I was an academic and I was politically involved and those things just seemed to be natural to me. And I think mm. I can't speak for Greg or Vicky particularly. I know Vicky much, much more well, but I suspect they would say the same. I mean, they were doing what they did and, and this thing then got named. So that's one of the things that's changed. And so now I think you have scholars who do recognise themselves as activist scholars or activist criminologists or more broadly activist social scientists. Now, I think that's probably a, a very positive thing because it says to other emerging scholars that this is a legitimate thing to do, right? To combine politics mm -hmm. and academic work. That's the first thing I'd say. The second thing I'd say, though, which kind of runs somewhat counter to that, is that I think it's, and I, I can speak from my experience now, not for others. You know, I, I started out work 40 years ago, right, in academia, almost 40 years ago. And uh, I think it was easier to, to be an activist scholar then. You know, there were far fewer constraints, measurements, performance targets, pressures as, a, as an academic then. I mean, compared to kind of scholars who are starting out now, I think it's really difficult for them to plow their own furrow, to not seek out state-funded work or, or large research grants, you know, not, not to kind of worry about that performance measurement in terms of research publications, in terms of teaching rankings. You know, I, I didn't have any of those things, and, I, and I'm very happy to say that, but I know that that's a privilege to be able to say that. So I think it's, it's also harder to be an activist criminologist now, I think, or an activist scholar now, I think, than it was kind of 20, 30, 40 years ago. Can I just add to that? I think it is something that we address in the introduction, actually, is the harms of the neoliberal university and the impact that that has on two groups. One is those who are involved in activist criminology and, uh, and everything else. And also, I think the potential for uh, harming or impacting upon groups that academics work with, for the reason being that one, you know, there are there is always a risk of co-option being basically being co-opted into, you know, ref related impact agendas, etc., which we have in the UK. That's not an international thing, but we've got the research excellence framework. And then the question becomes, well, what is a legitimate political agenda around uh, activist criminology or activist academia? And what has the potential for exploitation or co-opting into university-based indicator factors etc and I think that that's something that those who are involved in the high level processes of running in academia really need to recognize as a risk and as I've mentioned to people previously but the, the, we actually have had some of our contributors 
who have been working in academia since the activist handbook came into fruition have actually left academia to go and work in other sectors and only recently I've also resigned um, and undecided on whether or not to stay in academia given the the environment that Steve has just kind of outlined and I don't think we should think of the historic aspects Steve that you experienced in academia as a privilege it should be normalized that's actually what we should have we should be striving for a university yep, that is totally. ethical and um, produces conditions under which we can actually all all thrive so with so many people leaving then um, academia is there a way that they can still contribute then to the research part of it? I mean, is, is that still available to them? Because like, it seems that that would be a, a lot of knowledge being taken away if they don't, if they're not involved. One of the sort of aspirations, I guess, of the book series is to to have activists involved in in the publications. Uh, that's something that we would be we would very much welcome, and to have a, a much more sort of creative and sort of expansive way of thinking about a, a, a book series with a publisher so that's that's what how one of the ways we've tried to conceive of it but we're running a, a, a sort of a, a career a research career alongside another career is is very hard so whether that's even possible remains to be seen so I think it brings us on to um and the questions around um, engagement with activists and I mean it'd be quite interesting to get your views on sort of how you think criminologists you know should act should they engage with activists and what what can be gained from engagement what can be gained from from not engaging and maybe standing back that's an interesting question uh, look I, I think it's not it's not necessarily a choice that any one individual can make I mean I can speak for myself I mean I didn't decide to engage with activists or non-academics it would be, you know I developed relationships over long periods of time and, and you know develop and they're based upon trust and they're based upon reciprocity and lots of non-academics are quite rightly and communities I mean I think for example of, of the folk in and around Grenfell very very suspicious of, of researchers coming in and seeing this as a laboratory and a place to, to kind of plunder really uh, for you know research rankings or whatever so I think it's not it's not necessarily a choice but I think you know as one does engage and as one does you know, work, as I said, reciprocally, then you know, trust is developed. And, and then the, the upside of that, to be very frank, I mean, you know, it, it does then give you access as, as an academic to places and to people and to experiences you would otherwise never be able to access. Right. And it's, it's despite the fact that I've dealt with death for 35 to 40 years, it's been a really, really uplifting experience working with various people I've worked with and it's also helped me I mean I, I, I had my own bereavement I lost two brothers in a very short space of time a few years ago and the support of people who've been through similar experience really helped me so I, I think those things about reciprocity and trust are really are, and, and long-term ongoing relationships are, are really important and they I, I don't so I don't think necessarily you can just make a choice but I think you have to be open to open to those uh, those that that engagement and those experiences but 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 for me selfishly and, and luckily very very i feel very very lucky very privileged to have had that, that those experiences oh, i think it's incredible and like you said it, when it's based on relationships it's not like you necessarily choose to make those relationships they happen or they don't happen and um so and then you you run with it because you're not you're not going to let those people down and and vice versa i guess so i'm quite interested as well about what you can do as criminologists to 
work against the negative impacts of crime controls, especially on those that are intersectionally disadvantaged um, in society. And, and I know Vicky obviously worked in this area quite a bit. So, I mean, what challenges do they face and, and what can you do as, as a criminologist to sort of help them? I think that there are loads of ways of looking at and addressing that question. One does kind of require perspective and what the inputs are from academia sort of that way round. One important factor for me and and I hope I think also for Greg and Steve is to inform in ways that don't uh, facilitate the expansion of controls and the sort of, you know, the octopus hands, which is unfair on Octopi, but, uh, you know, the, the kind of ways in which these can insidiously actually end up expanding and I think that's something that we try and work against so that's that's how we use language it's how we use evidence of the harms of criminalization when we think about places such as as prison as being places of pain and injustice as being inherently built on violent ideologies not only around control but around the kind of psychological and emotional impacts that this has also on how that impacts on families as well. So Steve was talking earlier about working with families, both um, from the victims of Grenfell, but also families against corporate killings and stuff, as an example. We forget that there are so many people affected by aspects of both criminal justice and broader forms of injustice, as well as corruption, actually which is facilitated through some of these kind of the ways in which power, power works through the many facets of criminal justice approaches. And some of those, I think for me as well, thinking from some of my other perspectives, the, the problems that that causes in net widening, as, as Dan Cohen would have said, net widening into so many other non-criminal justice um, arenas. So recognising things like you know, um, the way universities are used to control uh, borders, the way in which uh, social housing facilitates the control of poorer people. I think one of the things is recognising the expansiveness of those harms and not adding to them. So strangely, one thing activists, criminologists can do is not add to the harms of criminalisation and criminal justice by being co-opted into the expansive ways in which they develop. Quite often, people who are affected by injustices have got many of the great answers to how that can be responded to. So I think there's something about academics, rather than, you know, addressing or implementing hypotheses, is listening first and then responding. And, and that's something that I've been doing. I mean, for example, I recently finished a book called Torture and Torturous Violence, and I worked both with survivors of, of torturous violence and other forms of sexualized and domestic abuse. But also, before I published the book, I went out to many of the people involved in the processes, lawyers, social workers, survivors, and asked them if I was on the right tracks. Am I making sense? Rather than just, well, here's what I think. I actually consulted with people who were both experientially and professionally involved in the process. So I think a conversation and re reciprocal relationships and discussions between invited parties is really important, actually. That co-production of knowledge or co-generation of knowledge where academics, scholars, whatever you want to call us or them, work with activists to, you know, produce 
so you know there are a few things have changed over recent years you know we've we've seen a kind of an acknowledgement that social movements for example and activists are producers of knowledge and that we as academic researchers can co-produce knowledge with so there's a flattening of the relationship as it were between <clears throat> those two actors but we've also seen uh, and, and this goes to something that steve was saying previously a kind of debunking of the idea of neutral social scientific knowledge production as well and it's okay for us to have a sort of politics that we engage with that isn't objective or neutral because we can't be objective and neutral anyway because we're human beings and so on and so forth so that there's a couple of things going on there which are broader kind of trends and developments in the philosophy of the social sciences i guess um, that activist criminology plugs into one of the charges of those against those of us who kind of take sides so to speak or would, would call ourselves or be called activist activist criminologists is that we're not being kind of neutral we're not being value free we're not taking the kind of uh, the, the being objective and so on uh, which which are c kind of key claims in certain traditions of social science but of course the folks who aren't activist criminologists the folks who are taking money from the state they're not being neutral either but nobody ever questions that independence, their neutrality, their value freedom. Uh, so I would I would always kind of lob that charge back at those who would lob it at me or us. And the second thing to say is quite different, um, which is that my experience is not all the people I've worked with over, over the years, but of working with those bereaved by corporate or state killings. You know, as criminologists, we tend to think the, the answers to a violation, including a death, lie in the criminal law. That's where accountability is found, because that's kind of what we do. Right? That's our discipline. And of course, some some families, some individuals, some households do want criminal justice responses to the loss of a loved one. Right? But what they mostly want, in my experience, is some form of systemic change for other families or other households or other individuals in that same situation. So they want accountability which means prevention. They don't want accountability, which means punishment. And that's a really instructive lesson for us as criminologists, which I think we learn through our, well, I've certainly learned through my engagement with those who've been bereaved by state and corporate killings. That's where the activism part of the criminology thing comes in, because social movements and activism is about not only recognising, diagnosing a problem or an issue or an injustice or whatever, but trying to bring about some kind of change systemic change and that's where the activist stuff comes i mean in many ways activist criminology is a species of critical criminology in the sense that it diagnoses the harms as vicky was talking about the harms that are done by corporations the harms that are perpetrated by the state and so on and so forth but there's the added aspect of that is the activist mm. side to things where things are in need of change and that's where the activism mm. comes in I've written and uh, been involved in many projects around around borders and the harms of borders, deaths of borders, um, uh, social, you know, the impacts of poor social housing, etc. I didn't wake up one day just coming to conclusions that these were just, you know, oh, here's some problems and I'll just kind of relay these because now I've got a, a bee in my bonnet about borders. I interviewed more than 100 practitioners. I spent hundreds and hundreds of hours of people seeking asylum as i wrote in the gendered harm book you know i was i've been in asylum housing i've been in initial accommodation and immigration detention centers 
many spaces which the same objective actors, including policymakers who implement decisions around some of these spaces, have never been. When I was writing at the time, Theresa May was Home Secretary. Theresa May had never been to asylum housing. So subsequently, it the idea that that this is that there is not a process by which these conclusions are made actually undermines the significance of the research, the ethnographies, the lived experience of the many people that we worked with to come to rational, reasonable, well-analyzed concerns and conclusions about the structural, you know, violences that are so deeply embedded in so many of, of, of people's everyday lives. So actually, quite often, you're going to find the people who are most, have most access to recognising the realities of situations are those who are most easily ignored by saying, oh, well, you can't be objective. And that's where this myth of, you know, value neutrality and uh, objective academia can just be kind of, you know, addressed and, and quashed, to be honest. Part of the critique of the law and part of the critique of the criminal justice system is that that the law is neutral you know that's the critique the critique is that the law isn't neutral the law is made invented created by certain people for yeah. certain interests and so on and so forth the criminal law is not objective it's a certain set of laws that are put on in place on the statute books for certain purposes you know and one of the other things and Vic and Steve can talk about this a bit more because they've written a book on it is that we're interested as critical criminologists and activist criminologists in things that aren't defined as crimes, things that are harmful, things that are harms, not just crimes. So it's a much more broad and expansive view and understanding of what's going on beyond the criminal justice system. You know, and I think Vic kind of touched on this where she talked about all of the various injustices that the activist criminology wants to touch upon. I would yeah. add to that 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 requires a, like there are, there is a distinction between a semiological lens though and the criminological lens and that's what we discuss in the introduction uh, I think in some depth is that this book and these these kinds of approaches are addressing the expansive ways that criminal justice criminalization and those harms of those systems go through there are many other things that are irrelevant or unrelated to criminology because they're semiological because they don't relate to the law they don't relate to transgressions or criminalization that's a kind of separate thing that we would look at that, that you know the kinds of harms of, of social housing that impacts people's breathing for example you know this is quite often far removed and never ends up in kind of criminal justice cases. An example I really think is important right now is that actually through these processes, which are silencing processes around objectivity and value neutrality, the term activist can often be used to undermine actually really relevant and important actions. And only last week, as I was at the British Society of Criminology as it happened, the Rwanda flights, the idea to, to deport people to Rwanda had been uh, by Priti Patel called uh, activist lawyers. So those who were involved in the process, these were activist lawyers. They were getting in the way of, you know, the, the best objectives of the, the British government. And in fact, they were able to overturn at the Court of Appeal last week, the process of outsourcing to Rwanda, to deporting people to Rwanda as a third country. And Actually, what you could really see very clearly there was these activist lawyers, in adverted commas, were 
dedicated professionals who were doing their job in upholding the law against actually what was a, a corrupt decision-making process by the state who would otherwise have been acting unlawfully. So I think it's also important to say that this kind of term activist is often used to deride actions, which in fact, in the conclusionary phases, can actually be upholding the law against the state's own criminal actions. And in fact, activists are criminalised increasingly. Yep. From both all of our vantage points in the yeah. UK, increasingly criminalised, police given almost total control over protests, mm-hmm. whether to ban them or not. We've got several pieces of legislation that have recently been put in place across Australian states here in Australia that, uh, you know, impose very large fines and prison sentences for locking onto equipment, so on and so forth. We saw it during the coronation, you know, where anti-monarchist Republic uh, protesters were detained for 16 hours mm-hmm. for supposedly carrying on equipment for locking on and so on and so forth. So it, it goes even further in a sense beyond what Vicky's saying to, to sort of extend yeah. to activists actually being criminalised. I mean, I've written quite a bit over the years about criminalisation of dissent. It's been fascinating <laughs> listening to you. And I mean, I think all, all of what you're you're talking about is, you know, it, it is an area that know not so much is really understood like in the general population I, I don't think people necessarily you know have this sort of information or you know um really understand the different viewpoints and and I think obviously you've published this handbook now um the Emerald International Handbook of Activist Criminology and just um I know you've touched on it um here and there since you've been talking but um, it'd be quite interesting to find out from you why you you think it was, you know, the right time to produce something like a handbook and, you know, and how you think that might impact the field of criminology? We're at a time where there is a drive, there is a necessity to engage with bringing these various fields together to get across these concerns to as wide of an audience as, as is possible. So not just within academia, we're a crisis point in the in relation to the environment. And yet, rather than respond to this in addressing corporate harms and crimes, we respond by developing new laws to cow protest and to increase the potential uh, for people to be criminalized. So this this is happening around us now. We're seeing where it is more problematic to save lives at sea um, and be criminalized for for stopping people drowning in the Mediterranean, then allowing more than 24,000 people to drown in the Mediterranean since 2014. So, you know, whenever you've got such a contrast between what the serious issues are and who is actually criminalized for trying to respond to these ethically, and actually I would say morally, then that is the time to engage in thinking about how academia can can use its force how criminology can use its force to make shifts for the positive the handbook is part of a, a bigger series and mm. it might be quite interesting to find out what your aims are for that series and hope it achieves we've we've got uh, one book already in the series and we're always looking for others and uh, we've got two new editors involved as well um that bring to the book series um you know different perspectives and experiences and so forth so that is an exciting development as well. It's it's exciting and and it's reasonably new, but hopefully the handbook will provide some inspiration for people who are interested in this area. Um, they can have a look at it and think, well, maybe my research, my PhD research or whatever, plugs into that and submit a proposal and, and we can take it from there. 
what I would say is, is if I had a hope for the series, following on what Greg's just said, it would be seen as a place which would publish books that other, other series wouldn't publish. So I, I think it's, a, you know, it, it publishes kind of a, a bit of stuff from the margins, but you know, not not just, but but it's it's a home for things that other, otherwise might not find a home. And if it if it achieves that, which I'm sure it will, then I'm really happy to have been a part of its uh, of its kind of uh, uh, genesis. Fabulous! That's a, that's a wonderful hope, and I think it's a really exciting series, and mm. it's quite varied, and you've got a lot of different perspectives and some conflicting ones, and I think it it all adds to the the interest and um and challenging each other and. Um, I, I guess when we think of activist criminology, um, it's it's sort of looking at how it can make a difference to injustice in the future. And I guess my last question to you is, what's next for activist criminology? How do you see it evolving in the future? And what can it really do to challenge injustice? I think that what already exists to a degree shouldn't be undermined there. That, I mean, coordinate the European group for the study of deviance and social control, for example, been lucky enough to meet so many people engaged in unbelievable grassroots work. We'd like to see, or certainly I'd like to see that work come into fruition in their own independent terms. So, you know, be able to drill down onto some of these kind of relatively unknown subject areas and forms of injustice. Even reading the, you know, when we were editing the handbook, you know, I'm learning as I go along, I'm going through the chapters thinking, wow, you know, this this work that this person has done or, you know, oh, I didn't know what craftivism was or there's uh, some colleagues in some parts of the world that I'm thinking, I would never have known this if I wasn't coming to edit this handbook. So personally, I'd just love to see the capacity for those people who are engaged in such great work to have a platform to be heard and to also shape the fields themselves. We're now welcoming Biko Agazino and Valeria V. Weiss, who have been instrumental in their areas of, of own topics into the team. We are actually excited to see what they want to do with what we've been doing with the series so far and where that can go in, in an international and geographical sense, but also in how they see activist criminology and that how they want to influence shaping it as we move forward, which is a really exciting time. Thank you for listening to our episode on activist criminology. You can find more information about our guests and a transcript of the episode on our website. I'd like to thank my guests for joining me and sharing their insights, along with podcast producer Daniel Ridge and the studio This Is Distorted.